So it's great having the baptisms here today. Congratulations, Benjamin and Stanley again. And uh, great hearing those people from New Wine. I actually popped down to New Wine myself on Sunday or Monday. I read that the weather forecast was, was pretty good, dry, but nothing particularly uh, you know, hot. Uh, so I turned up uh, in rain uh, without a rain jacket, and the next day, uh, without any suntan lotion, I got sunburnt. So hopefully I'm a bit better prepared for this sermon than I was for that. But one of the things that strikes me when we hear from people when they come back from New Wine, and what struck me when I was at New Wine earlier in the week, is just how happy and excited everyone seems to be. Now, they may look like that today. That could, of course, be just uh, one night in a comfortable bed, power showers, hair dryers, and fully fitted kitchens. But actually, I think there's something more going on. And that's that they've spent a week seeking God worshipping him, listen to his word through the Bible being explained, having Christian community together for a week. And when we do those things and really enter into that opportunity, actually God touches us and we have the opportunity to rediscover that passion, that love, that real fire in our belly, that excitement that actually God longs for us to have. So it's really fitting that actually this sermon today is exactly on how we also can rediscover those things. But I'm not asking us all to go away this week to a campsite somewhere and go through a week's Christian festival, much as you'd like it, I'm sure. Um, But what we're going to do is do it through this parable here this morning. One verse which actually has in it the keys, I believe, to lifelong fulfillment and joy. So... The brevity of the parable may not necessarily translate into the brevity of the sermon, so apologies to you if that's a disappointment. But what I can tell you is I love this parable, and actually I was inspired when I heard someone else preach on it at New Wine several years ago, and I noted it that I want to preach a a sermon on that parable myself one day. So here is that moment, and I've got two points that I want to share that unpack the two main ideas in the passage. But before I go on and do that, let's pray. Father God, thank you that you know us. Your son, Jesus, said that every hair on our head is numbered. And whether we are fully (laughs) covered in hair or, or not so fortunate, Lord, that's still a pretty impressive thing. We thank you that you know everything about us. And yet you love us. And Lord, I pray you would take this opportunity now to speak to us, to encourage us, to draw us to honestly, honestly respond to you, honestly admit where we're at, and honestly seek your guidance in how we should move forward with you. So Lord, whether we consider ourselves far from you or close to you, would you draw us further into your presence today, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, so what's the first point I want to make this morning? Well, it's the one that Jesus makes in his opening sentence. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom, that is the thing that we're all deep down longing for, the place that we all want to be. And the people group that we want to be part of is hidden, waiting for us to find it 
to take ownership of it and to delight in its many wonders and blessings. And this is a metaphor, actually, that stood the test of time, isn't it? This idea of hidden treasure, because so many of our children's stories and even some adult stories are based on it, aren't, aren't they? Just two famous ones which immediately spring to mind. Treasure Island. Who's read Treasure Island? Or heard it read? Large number of us. Or Pirates of the Caribbean. Who's seen that? Yeah, fair number. So treasure hunt stories are a massive part of our culture. And they certainly were understandable to them there then as well. In Jesus' time, there were no banks in the modern sense. So actually hiding your wealth in the ground was a relatively sensible thing to do, as long as obviously you remembered where you buried it and no one else saw you bury it. Actually, it was as safe as anything, to be honest. And uh, as long as, of course, as you also mentioned, whoever's going to be your, in, your, uh, get your inheritance where it actually was. So I'm sure they did that. But what's absolutely clear is that with the vast majority of the country at that time in Israel, they were impoverished agricultural labourers or fishermen. They would have understood exactly how much joy discovering hidden treasure would actually have brought. Because it meant a way out of poverty when no other straightforward way existed And it promised a life transformed that I can only liken to the transformation of someone having a multi-million pound lottery win today. And we love modern day treasure stories as well. I don't know if you're recalling any from recent years, but here's one that I found out about. So it took place in Yorkshire. The year was 2000. And seven, and uh, David Whelan and his Andrew's son, his son, his son Andrew, were metal detecting, which I think it's fair to say probably not the coolest thing to be doing. But let's be honest. But there they were in a North Yorkshire field, metal detecting. Quite don't know quite how you do that, but they suddenly discovered, though, hidden amongst scraps of iron, a finely engraved silver bowl. This is what it looked like. Well, once they dug the mud off, presumably, anyway. It looked like that. And uh, they obviously took this to an auctioneer's, found out, you know, what is it, what is it worth? And upon realising its value, a full-scale dig commenced, which ultimately produced uh, a huge number of stuff. 617 silver coins and 65 other fine silver items. Most of them were made in France and Germany around 900 AD, and when the hoard was sold to the Yorkshire Museum, they were left to split, together with the landowners, a core one million pounds. Amazing, isn't it? I wouldn't mind making a discovery like that. So what is Jesus saying then by describing God's kingdom as treasure? He's saying it's rare. He's saying it's found, not earned. And he's saying it's been placed there precisely so it can be found. He's saying that there's nothing mediocre about it. He's saying that it's precious, beautiful, wonderful, mind-blowing and priceless. And he's saying it's what we've always wanted. Everything we've ever longed for. It's, and it's everything we will ever need. And he's saying that if we find it, our lives will never be the same again. So, the question you might be asking at this point, and it's, a, it's the vital question, what is the treasure? It's God's kingdom, which means anywhere where God is reigning. 
And that means, yes, it includes the universal, total people, people of God across the world, all those who follow Jesus Christ and have him as their Lord and Saviour. It's the whole church, both dead, present, and to come. So it includes that. It's also the new heaven and earth where we hope one day to live. And yet it's also actually in us as individuals right now. Because reigning inside us, if we have invited him to come in, reigning inside us, we have the king himself, Jesus. He's in us. And this is the offer that he made to every man, woman and child who welcomes him into their life. Here's a, a verse from John 14:23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. If you have invited them to do that, Jesus is inside you through his Holy Spirit. And Jesus uh, described this in a different way uh, on this following verse, John 4, verse 13. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, as he looked at the water in the well where he was speaking to that person. But whoever drinks the water I give you will never thirst Indeed, the water that I give will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The rest of the New Testament makes us, makes us understand that that is the Holy Spirit he's referring to. And that is an amazing thing. If you're a Christian, you have that wellspring deep within you. And it offers us a continual supply of living water whenever we go deep into it and allow it to refresh or quench our thirst. And if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're one of the guests of the, the baptism families, well, this is what you could have. God inside you, giving you that spiritual life that you long for. Giving you that guidance, that inspiration, that encouragement. So what is the treasure then that we're thinking about in this parable? It's God's presence, God's encouragement, his forgiveness, his love, his sustenance, his word, and his power and his wisdom. And all of those things give us what in this life we truly need and truly long for and offer us a life in heaven for eternity. That is what God offers to us all. And the way he described it in this parable is as the most priceless treasure we could ever hope to find. And it's actually about the life, the life that we've truly wanted and that we truly desire as well. Jesus said this in John 10.10, The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that everything that you truly long for in your life, I can give you. And yet he's also warning us there that there is a thief. There is a devil. Jesus was absolutely clear about that, as all the other Bible writers were, and as we are here in this church too. There is a devil. And just as um, the devil uh, is seeking to take away that fullness of life. Well, actually, whenever God's word is sown into us, the devil wants to take it away. And the parable of the sower, another very famous parable, captures that. 
We just have that in front of us now. Jesus said this, Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. How does he do that? Well, it's where we hear God's word, we read God's word, and yet Satan says things like this to us. He tells us that there is no treasure. He tells us that it's not worth digging for, that it's nothing special, or that there's no treasure for you because you don't deserve it. Or he tells us that that actually the treasure, um, more people have more treasure than you and cause us to be jealous. So he tempts us to a false treasure, whether it's material wealth or power, or status, or popularity, or sex, or whatever it might be, which is a way of making us work for his treasure instead. Because he wants to rob us of absolutely everything that the kingdom brings and represents. And the other way he does that is by simply causing us to forget the treasure that we already have. So we no longer get any benefit from it. So we no longer enjoy it, and we actually forget It's there. And as a consequence of that, in any one place where Christians are gathered, there will be many Christians who actually have no idea what they've got. God's love, God's presence, God's power, or at least they've forgotten just how incredible those things are so that it is no longer having the impact on them that it was meant to have. And that's a tragedy when that happens. But compare it to how the biblical writers describe it. Here's just some examples. The Apostle Paul wrote of the incomparable riches of his grace as he talked about what God has given us in that treasure and of the love that surpasses knowledge. And he said that a God is, a God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask um, or imagine. So that's Paul. Um, Many other Bible writers said similar things. And what it all adds up to is that we have a God who gives treasure. Yet the moment we stop thinking of it as a treasure beyond value, beyond cost, that blows our mind away, is the moment that we've actually been robbed, spiritually neutralized, which is the place that the devil wants us to be, where we're no longer a threat to him, and where we're missing out on all God's blessings for us. So if that's you at the moment, if you feel that you've forgotten, or it's not actually impacting you in the way that it once has, or in the way that you know it's meant to, well, just take time over the next few days and weeks to meditate, to reflect, to wait in God's presence, and to ask him to renew you again to feast again on the delights of his treasure chest from him who has given you all good things. And then hopefully the emotion of the man in the parable should again be ours because we're told that in his joy he went and bought the field. And joy ought to be the primary emotion of the kingdom. There is great pleasure in the treasure. Joy should be the mark of a disciple, just as it was for those earliest believers, despite all the persecution and the suffering that they faced. For example, the Apostle Peter talked about an inexpressible and glorious joy. Paul, again, writing to the Philippians, said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. 
And he said that everything else in the world, whether money or status or power or fame or heritage or nationality or education, was rubbish. In fact, he used a word a bit ruder than that. Compared to the surpassing knowledge and worth of knowing Christ Jesus, for whose sake he had lost all things. So if you got that joy, or are you right now more Eeyore than Inor? <laughs> Excuse my poor puns. <laughs> Dig deeper into the ground to unearth more of that treasure in your life because we all need to go deeper and joy will be the proof that we've done so. Make that your goal this morning. Well, that's my first point. It's much bigger than the second. The second is this. To have this treasure, to have this kingdom, to have this joy, we have to sell everything we have. Because a man in the parable still had a choice, didn't he? When he found it, we're told he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. But he could have said, couldn't he? I'm not willing to do that. I'm too attached to all these other things. And to be honest, there's probably quite a lot of us who would say, well, there's quite a lot that we're attached to, that we'd be reluctant to give up. And yet the cost of receiving the treasure God has for us is everything we have, no more, no less. Everything else has to go. So what does it mean then? Do we take this literally? Am I saying something that we'd all say is impossible to do? Or is Jesus actually saying something deeply challenging, but something that is attainable, that actually, if we understand it, we can do? Well, let's unpack it like this. First of all, a bit of light relief. Uh, let me just show you what a, it isn't. Here's an anti-gambling poster uh, that the Singapore government uh, dis- widely displayed across the country uh, before and during the last World Cup. So cast your mind back two years. You can see what it says there. Who won the World Cup? Germany, that's right. So uh, that clearly backfired on them somewhat. They should clearly have chosen England, although probably people wouldn't have thought it was realistic if that had happened. But selling everything for the sake of God's treasure is not a gamble at all. We're not going to end up empty-handed. And it's not exclusively material or financial things either, given how Jesus unpacks it elsewhere. So despite the fact that in this parable that we're reading, it focuses on selling material possessions, and because Jesus in this next passage, let's read it, almost uses the language of martyrdom, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I don't know where that came from, (laughs) Add all this stuff together. Yes, we've got the language of material things giving up. Yes, we've got the language even of laying down our lives. And yes, some of the disciples did exactly those two things. But add it to the rest of the New Testament. And what this is basically about is who's the boss. Jesus is Lord. He's the king. And he's saying to us, are you willing to make the king king? Are you willing to recognize actually that everything we have is his and that the only right way to live in this life is to be a good steward, a good servant of all that God has given us? And that is the key. It's to say there's only room for one boss in our lives and that is Christ Christ. 
and our heavenly father. And if you want to have all the treasure of the kingdom, that is the crucial precondition to say that it's all yours now. Use me and use my resources for your glory, for your purposes. And I know I'm going to find the fulfillment, the joy, the purpose, the comfort, the peace, the satisfaction that comes from knowing your ways are better than my own. That's what it means. Happiness and joy results from letting go of anything other than the treasure God has for us. As Jesus said elsewhere, no one can have two masters. You can't be a part-time Christian living for Jesus on Sundays and for something else the rest of the time. It's a 24-7 thing, all or nothing. For it's in surrender, in dying to self and choosing to obey Jesus in all things, in choosing to invest in our lives, in our relationship with him through prayer, through reading his word, that the real pleasure of the treasure comes. And we need that to be our life pattern from now for the rest of our lives. Here's a man who discovered this uh, in a very costly way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, one of the most famous of the 20th century, who ended up dying late in the Second World War in a concentration camp after he spoke out against the Nazi, Nazi regime. And he wrote a book about what he called cheap grace in the cost of discipleship. And this is what he said cheap grace is. It's things like preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without commitment, communion without confession, grace without obedience, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living inside us, leading us, inspiring us. In short, it's Christianity that asks nothing of us, which I have to say is what many British people assume it to be. But real Christianity, the Christianity Jesus taught us, the Christianity Bonhoeffer wrote about in that book, is costly grace. It's the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of the which the man will go and give up all that he has. And that is the call of Jesus Christ in response to which his first disciples left their nets and their livelihoods and their families and followed him. Costly grace is the treasure that must be sought again and again. The gift for which must be asked for. The door at which man must knock each day. And so costly grace means this morning acknowledging our lack of joy, our lack of surrender, our lack of confession, our lack of willingness to sacrifice for Jesus, that we have allowed ourselves to be distracted from the treasure, that we've held back from giving God what he deserves and so failed to receive all that he has for us in return. And it's about once again saying to him, we need you. It's saying that we need to dig down into that treasure and into that living water once again to have our souls satisfied, to delight in it, to treasure the treasure and allow it to bring us the joy we crave. That's what we need to do this morning. Or as that other passage we heard read, put it, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy a safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because you will be making his desires, your desires. If you want true joy, 
then it comes from aligning your priorities, your hopes, your ambitions, your goals to the ones that God has given you, the ones that Jesus modeled for you. And then you will find that all your prayers will be answered because you're praying the very things that your heavenly father longs to happen in your life. So that's what's on offer here this morning. And I'm going to give us two opportunities now just to respond to that. I'm conscious that we've got a mix of people in the room. We'll have people in the room who have never even necessarily heard this message of what true Christianity actually is. Costly grace. One that demands a lot, but gives us everything in return. Maybe this is the first time you've heard that. Or maybe this is the first time where you've been willing to respond to that by praying a simple prayer that invites our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, into our homes, into our hearts, as they so long to be. So a prayer is just going to appear on the screen now, which is semi-legible, but don't worry. Uh, I'm, going to pr- I'm going to read it out loud. I'm going to invite us all now just to maybe just have a quick look at it now, and then we're going to close our eyes. I'm going to pray it, and I just invite anyone who wants to pray also just to silently pray that in your heart and mind. God will hear that prayer and you will have made it a wonderful and very important step in your life. So just a few more moments just to look through what you're going to be praying. And now I'd like to invite us all, whether we've done this before or we're doing it for the first time, just to close our eyes. I'm going to read this prayer. And God will respond to it. Dear God, I need you. I'm humbly calling out to you. I'm tired of doing things my way. Help me to start doing things your way. I invite you into my life to be my Lord and Saviour. Fill the emptiness in me with your Holy Spirit and make me whole. Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to love you. Help me to live for you. And help me to understand your grace, your mercy and your peace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're just going to keep our eyes closed just for a few more moments. And then we're going to continue to pray. And I just want to say as we've got our eyes closed, I mean, if anyone did pray that prayer for the first time, perhaps if you could just, uh, just raise one hand just for us now. Okay.